Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, and a pleasant good Monday morning to each and every one of you. We welcome you, as always, to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. Gentlemen, how are we looking today? Casey McAllister, Paul Fritchner, you guys all right? Good weekend? Yeah, it was a pretty good weekend for Chatterbox. Um, Miami versus Oklahoma. Um, we had a lot of people join in on the show. Tens of thousands. Yes, li- literally tens of thousands yes. of people. Um it was over a hundred thousand total. Yeah. Wow. Now those are big numbers. Yeah. yeah. It was a very big to day. watch softball. Yeah. Yeah. Women's yeah. softball. Yep. Number one team in the country, Oklahoma. Reed and Casey, Luke West, Pauly were up there doing the game, and it was uh, it was a great game, and it seemed like everybody enjoyed it. Big moment for Chatterbox. Over a hundred thousand people watched collectively. Yeah. And I wonder forget- if we'll do those kind of numbers today on our show. Do you think we will? Well, We're coming the, up short to Miami women's softball. Well, if the Sooner Boomer family wants to show even more support, we would appreciate it. I don't sure. know if they're in the chat. That is a big-time sports operation at Oklahoma. It is. That is a big-league operation, and they're on their way, of course, from the Big 12 to the SEC. We come your way Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to high noon. We stream on YouTube slash Chatterbox Sports. We also live stream on Facebook, Chatterbox Sports page. If you prefer to join us in podcast form, by all means, just search off the bench with Tom Brenneman and you're dialed in. The Reds need help in a number of different areas. We know that. But need number one has to be what to do with the fourth and fifth spots in this starting rotation. Nick Lodolo, Graham Ashcraft, and Hunter Green are going to be fine. But they cannot continue to start Connor Overton and Luis Sessa and run them out there twice every five days. Friday night, Overton goes three innings, allows five runs in an 8-3 loss. Casey, you were there for the big fireworks show. After a great outing by Ashcraft in a 13-0 route on Saturday, Sessa comes out yesterday, gives up nine runs in the first inning. They leave him in there because they can't have the bullpen gobble up eight innings. So he goes three, allows 11 runs and 14 hits. We keep hearing about Luke Weaver coming back. I don't know if that gets you excited, but there has to be better than these two guys in their minor leagues. There has to be. I mean, no matter who it is, they can't be much worse. Joey Votto is back in Cincinnati, but not quite yet to play for the Reds. Due to major league rules, Votto... Uh, had to come off his rehab in Louisville. Now, in a few days, they can send him back to AAA to begin a second stint. We will talk more about the Reds with Bob Nightingale Jr. from Cincinnati.com. He will join us at 1030 today. Best play, baseball's best team is in town to start a three-game series tonight, the Tampa Bay Rays. Kevin Cash's team tied a major league record, 13 straight wins to begin the season. They then lost two in a row before beating Toronto yesterday for their 14th win. They're 14-2. and two. Hunter Green gets a ball for the Red Legs in game one. First pitch, 640. Tickets are available. NBA playoffs off and running. On Saturday, the Cleveland Cavaliers lost their opening round game. That's a best-of-seven series. They all are in the NBA playoffs. 
That was against the Knicks, 101-97, game two tomorrow night. Other opening game winners out east. The ace seed Miami over the number one seed Milwaukee Bucks, 130-117. to Giannis had to leave the game with some kind of back injury. His status is up in the air for game two. Without him, the Bucks are done. Game two is Wednesday night in Milwaukee. Elsewhere, Sixers top Brooklyn. Out west, the top seed Denver Nuggets hammer Minnesota, 109-80. How about the Lakers? They get a double-double from both LeBron James and Anthony Davis in their win over the number two seed Memphis, 128-111. The defending champion Golden State Warriors lost at Sacramento, 126-123. The Phoenix Suns lost for the first time with Kevin Durant in the lineup, 115-110 to the L.A. Clippers. When Phoenix traded for Durant, the old adage, you got to give up something to get something, right? If you go look at the plus-minus numbers of the bench from Phoenix, this is where that trade kills them. They're good in their front five. When they got to go to that bench, the depth is just depleted, and that is where L.A. lit up Phoenix in Game 1. In the NHL, the playoffs get started tonight in soccer. Casey. Oh, boy. What in the world happened to your once unbeaten? No longer, I might add. FC Cincinnati falling to St. Louis City SC 5-1. to one. Well, I'm going to keep this as brief as possible because this is a game that you just don't take anything away from. Uh, you just forget about it completely. Act like a goldfish, for those of you that watched Ted Lasso would know what I'm talking about. Um, first off, this game was delayed for two hours, so... Not to, that that's an excuse for the team, but it's very clear that they came out looking flat. Um, this is a team that we are already very nervous about. They have a play style that um, was very, uh, very effective versus FC last year, and it sh it reared its ugly head tonight. Um, defensively, it was just bad, and like I said before. Since the start of the season, it's looked like the offense has just really not clicked yet. It's not it's not figured itself out, and it's not even like the offense would have been able to, I think, you know, keep up with a, a, a five-scored goal game. But it wouldn't have been so bad if um, they just played better. And the fact that Acosta was out, um, the stuff with Brenner – and now you're looking at possibly Vasquez being traded away. Um, this team is in a really interesting spot. Um, a very um, bad, bad-looking future, I, I will say. If they don't get the the transfer right, if they don't get a guy that can replace Vasquez and Brenner, then this team is not going to be nearly what it was a season ago. So. I'm, I'm very nervous about FC. I don't think that they'll continue to lose like this, obviously. I think it's just the circumstances um, surrounding it, like the delay. I got to tell you, though, it's another but... thing with soccer, Casey, I just don't understand. I made the analogy after you, you guys informed me how it kind of works, about what's the most, you know, the, the Premier League is the exclusive league, the most exclusive league. There are others. 
But I made the analogy and asked you guys a question. You confirmed the question that I asked about baseball, okay? You know, it used to be over in Japan where a player had to play, I think it was five years in the Japanese league, before they could become eligible to come to play in Major League Baseball where everybody wants to play, okay? Kind of like the English Premier League in soccer. That's fine. And then an American team, a Major League Baseball team, would pay uh, a bunch of money to that Japanese league team to bring over, let's just pick uh, Ichiro, okay? Okay. All right. All of that transpires, though, in the offseason. I just cannot understand for the life of me how a player signs a contract with a team they play during the season. They start the season, as is the case with FC Cincinnati. They're now eight games into the year. How in the world can a player then all of a sudden just vanish after you've built your club as a general manager, as an owner, as a coach, okay? That's yeah. what they do all offseason is they put their team together on what it's going to look like once the season begins. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, drones are flying around. Yeah, I mean, they could. Snipers they picking could. your players off. Well, the biggest thing there is that the seasons don't overlap. So any team that's trying to make a move in the off season is in season for the MLS, but it's in the off season for those teams in Europe. And let me also say this. Um, they could decline or they could deny a transfer they already did that once with Brenner I remember and, you and, saying that and the reason why they let these guys move on is because players want to go play there they want to move on and it would be bad business to decline again and then he just sits out and you lost out on the the, the transfer money which is really big money for them 13 million for Brenner is a really big deal so it's not like they're completely screwed. Like, they could go get some guys and fluff out the, the roster, or they could go get another Brenner and take a risk on a really high-profiled guy with that money. But it's just uh, – I do understand why it's frustrating for fans that might not understand. For it to happen right in the middle of the season, is it does stink. I, I, I will agree to that. It does stink. Um but that's what happens when, when your team gets really good, like FC has been in the past. Um, players move on. I mean, it, it happened to them even when they weren't in the MLS. They had players move on to to, to the MLS. And now that they're here, um, it, it's, it's a new challenge for the, the club to figure out how to put another winning product out there. And fans just have to realize that some of these players that we do get um, aren't going to stick around. Some of them will. Some of them will hang out in the MLS because they've either tried that stint to move on to the uh, English Premier League or any other lower leagues like the um, the German League or Bundesliga, yeah, Bundesliga or any of the um, other higher touted leagues, but. Still doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. I mean, if it's all about just cashing checks and making the money. I mean, fine. Then just tell everybody that. But, I mean, that is one screwed-up league to have that kind of thing going on. Well, 
I mean, guy signs a contract to play for your team, play for your team. But no, we're going to let him go just so we can cash $13 million check. Yeah, but guys wouldn't want to play. What about all the fans? They get their money back if all of a sudden they committed to your franchise and bought season tickets and they sell out every single game expecting you to have player A, B, C, D, and E. Are the fans getting a refund on their uh, tickets? Yeah, but no is the answer to that question. But guys wouldn't want to play in the MLS if they didn't have the freedom to go be able to do this. I understand that. But yeah. the whole setup and structure is is just, it's a mess. I, I, I am on your side, actually, on this. I, I get it from a fan perspective, and I still don't really understand how the MLS League has been successful as to this far. Just from the this case alone, I'm not sure about the other teams that they have to deal with this well, I'm sure on a regular do. basis. But it's very strange to me because fans won't want to go to watch a team fall apart right in the middle of the season. Like, that, it's, it's proven. When a player gets injured, just for an example, like if, God forbid, Joe Burrow went down, you're going to lose out on a lot of fans. You're going to lose out on all those season ticket holders. They're going to sell their tickets or they're just not going to show up. And it's going to be somewhat of a similar process, I'm, I'm afraid, for FC once we start losing these guys. And I, I don't know. It's um, Like I said, it's a new challenge for them. And it's got to be – you have to know with that expectation in mind when you're rooting for an MLS team – when they acquire a player that was a fringe guy that could have maybe joined a higher league, but decided to come play for us because he would be a starter, star possibly, you have to know what the, the risks are involved with, with that all right. said player. Well, they're all dealing with the same thing. Yeah. Um, Nick Kirby, kind enough to point out, I had talked about in the monologue, they need to do something with that they, the Reds, in that starting rotation. Uh, Overton has gone on the injured list and Luke Weaver is going to replace him. Now, again, here we are in a situation where you tell me as a Reds fan, and we're going to ask Bob Nightingale Jr. about this in a minute. Okay. Luke Weaver was a former number one draft pick by the St. Louis Cardinals. This is going back to all the way back. All right. To 2014, a year and a half later, he's in the big leagues. Okay, Cardinals run him out there, a bunch of starts, not very good, okay? They decide to deal him to the Arizona Diamondbacks. So he goes to the Diamondbacks, and that was a big deal. That was in the um, Paul Goldschmidt trade. And Weaver, a lot of people felt like, being a number one pick, had been in the big leagues already a couple years, that he was a guy uh, that was a big part of that trade. Okay, now he did go through some injuries, had a right shoulder strain, and we always talk about it all the time. You start getting into shoulders, trouble. Medical science has not figured this out. We had Tim Kremchek on the show earlier. I mean, he's one of the top two guys on the planet to do reconstructive Tommy John elbow surgery. You have an elbow injury, chances are really good you're going to come back. There's even a good chance you're going to come back and throw harder than you did before the surgery. You start getting into shoulders, the track record uh, is not good of coming back. But Weaver's been able to come back and pitch. But the problem is, wherever he's gone, nobody's wanted him around very long. Okay? Diamondbacks, you know, 30 starts. Then he's hurt three years in a row. 
Uh, finally ends up getting healthy again, goes from last year, the Diamondbacks to the Royals. He's released by Seattle. He's 29 years old. I mean, is this really who you want to be bringing up to give your fans some hope? I mean, nothing against Luke Weaver. I root for the kid. I mean, I'm sure he's a great kid, but I mean, you got guys tearing it up in double A. And I know you get into the whole, oh, we start the clock on them and all that kind of stuff. The fans are already down about the direction of the franchise on multiple levels. Give the fans something to, they get excited about Ashcraft, right? You're excited about Hunter Green. You're excited about Nick Lodolo. Yeah. Why not give them another guy to run up here? I, I have a question. Instead of a 29-year-old who's pitched for five teams. Seriously. Yeah, what what are, besides moving a guy up, is there trade options available? Or, like, what, what does that look like besides bringing someone up from... You're not going to make a trade like that in April. Like, you're not going to go out and get... So, some, you're it, not going to go out and get a fourth starter in a, in a big trade in April for a team like the Reds. Just not like the Reds just aren't in that position right now. They're not going to give up organizational capital to just have a fourth starter. They're just going to have to trust somebody within the organization already. Okay. Maybe that's Luke Luke Weaver, and I understand what Tom's saying. Some frustration there, and I'm not nearly as well versed in the as the in the Reds minor league system as some people in this chat probably are. But I, you're not going out there and, and making a trade like that in the month of April already, so, maybe at the deadline. So the only option is bringing someone up. I'm, I've thought yeah. this, I've thought this since the beginning of the season. And I know I'm not a big, a big baseball guy, but I thought, you know, why not bring up some of your minor league guys? Like I thought Encarnacio Strand or Ellie De La Cruz, they should at least have a chance to be on the starting roster. And I, I know this is not pitchers necessarily, but I don't know. I think that would have brought a lot of excitement to the Reds organization. I think they will eventually do it, but I have not heard very many minor league guys talked about in the Reds farm system, at least from all the conversations that take place. It's a lot of CES and Ellie De La Cruz and um, Myers, I think. Um, but other than that, I didn't, you know, is there any pitchers, Tom? That well, the kid that's, that's, that's just, you know, the, the kid that's dealing right now is this left-hander who's pitching at double A. And, and it has long been considered the truth. I don't know if it's considered the truth any longer. Most people felt like if you could be a really good pitcher and or player at double A, it meant that you were really not far away from being close to the big leagues, meaning some guys have made the jump double A to the big leagues. That's Andrew Abbott. He's 23 years old. Um, let me see what round he was drafted in. He's a high draft pick by the Reds. He was the um, second round draft pick out of the University of Virginia in 2021. So he's, he's a college kid. He's 23 years old. That's very young. But the point is, the ACC, he's pitched big-time college baseball, okay? okay? He's been in the minor leagues where, you know, look, I mean, he went to, to, to two teams his first year. Okay, uh, only made by the time he got signed and all that. But the last year, last year, he won 10 games. 
He pitched uh, almost 120 innings. Okay, he finishes last year at Double A. They start him again at Double A this year because his success wasn't very good at Double A last year. Now, granted, he's only pitched 10 innings so far this year in Double A. He has struck out 25 batters and walked one. Wow. 25 batters. What in the hell is a third start at Double A going to be for him? I mean, you don't want to bring him to the big leagues right now? Don't bring him to the big leagues. But, I mean, the guys face, what, 35 batters. And he has struck out 25 of the 35 batters. That's a ridiculous number. Right? So, and he struck out, if I'm not mistaken, nine in a row in a game yeah. is a yeah. start ago. So, I mean, what in the world's he doing staying at double A? I, I just say to myself, you know, and I'm sure there's a million reasons that Nick Crawl and everybody else would give you, and I'm sure they're justifiable reasons. All I'm saying is, instead of bringing up a guy that four or five other teams took a flyer on, former number one pick, and those guys always get the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. Why not bring somebody up and put them in the rotation and give the fans something to be excited about because they are genuinely excited, if nothing else on this team. The team is gen- the fans are excited about Green Lodolo Ashcraft. Ashcraft's been their best pitcher. Lodolo's been good. Really good. But Ashcraft has been lights out. Yeah. And you look at double A, that's the first league where you can really make the make the uh, assumption that you could make the jump to the major leagues. I'm not saying that they should bring him up. I'm not saying again, there there can't be any decisions made right now in April where you're trying to make a push for any kind of success this season. All you're trying to do this year is get your guys as much major league experience as the year goes on as they need to get yep. so that eventually you can compete next year. That does not mean bringing up a double-A pitcher who has faced 35 batters, but what it might mean is bringing that guy quicker up to triple-A. Well, that's what I'm saying. And then quicker yeah. into the major leagues, right. you know, down the road by July after he's got two months of triple-A experience under his belt. So, yeah, I'm with you on that page, Tom. Uh, Serpoy points out at Stevenson in India, and they never played a AAA game when they were brought up. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. There you have get- been a lot of guys that have made the jump, not just Reds, but from other teams. Because some teams used to – some teams do that more frequently than others. One thing I will say about the Reds is, at least in the last number of years, they have not been worried about that proverbial um, – arbitration free agency clock starting. If they feel like a guy is ready for the big leagues, they're going to bring him up and put him on the opening day roster. I will give them a lot of credit for that. Um, They're not burying guys for two and a half weeks in the minor leagues just so they can, you know, wait on that uh, arbitration clock and all that kind of thing. They'll bring them up if they think they're ready. So, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I I just, I I just wonder. All right. Uh, But Bob Nightingale Jr. is going to join us in about uh, five minutes from now to talk about um, Weaver coming up. He saw Weaver down there in or out there in Arizona during spring training. Uh, So he'll have a few thoughts there. Joey Votto. Now, what to do about Votto? Now, the only reason Votto is back with the team, even though he's not on the roster, 
is because, as I mentioned, in the um, agreement, the CBA, between the owners and the players, there are rules and regulations and stipulations, and they're there by and large to um, protect players from getting buried down in the minor leagues and leaving them down there, in this case, on some rehab assignment, okay, for months at a time. Um, and, and, and they're in place for a good reason, many good reasons. But in this case with Votto, um, he was making a late push at the end of spring training. And look, I give Votto all the credit. In the world. I've said on this show before, okay, I may not be as huge a Votto fan as maybe some of you are, okay? He's had an unbelievable career. He's been one of the best Reds of all time. There's no debate about that. Um, and no one works harder than Joey Votto. No one, uh, Pete Rose is the closest thing I've ever seen to Votto as far as just being completely consumed with being great. There are a lot of guys that, that think they're consumed with being great uh, when in reality they're not even consumed with being really good. Votto is consumed with being great. And I give the guy all the credit in the world because there aren't a lot of people out there in any walk of life that want to do that. But he made that push at the end of spring training. This, this guy had two very serious surgeries, okay, on the triceps area and then in the shoulder that he tried to play through last year. So you got to give him, again, all the credit in the world. He's busted his tail to come back from not one surgery but two surgeries. He made a late push at the end of spring training thinking maybe I could be ready in time for opening day. He realized he would not be, and so he accepted the assignment to go down to start his rehab at AAA Louisville. He goes down there. It does not go well. He hits a home run his very first at bat, and after that, I mean, you know. Now, he had comments, which Bob Meaton Gale Jr. will uh, share with us here in a minute, about where he thinks he is. But the numbers don't quite paint that same picture. So what the Reds can do now is you keep him around here for a certain amount of time, let him do a lot of his therapy, a lot of his rehab, get swings in the batting cage. He might even take batting practice with the team at the ballpark. Uh, so they have to keep him around here for a few days. And if he agrees to it, you could send him out on a, um, another rehab assignment. And I have no doubt that that's exactly what's going to happen. Based on what we saw with Votto at AAA Louisville, there's no way, or at least I wouldn't think, there's no way he's going to work out here for X number of days and then declare himself ready to go uh, to face major league pitching because he was scuffling against AAA pitching. So um, this is going to be an interesting uh, situation to watch with Votto because all of a sudden Vossler, right, I mean – Every, everybody knew this was coming. It was, it was a nice week to start the year. But now, you know, the big story, and we'll find out more from uh, Bob Nightingale Jr. about this, is, is Steer yesterday. Did you see what happened to him? So late in the game, it's a massacre, right? Um, Steer's in the game at third. Uh, a diving play, which, by the way, his defense, uh, after a shaky spring training, has really continued to get better and better and better. That was a knock on him, is that he could hit and he wasn't much in the field. His defense is really, really turned around. But, you know, they're saying he's fine, but 
if you watch it on television or you heard it on the radio, when a player takes himself out of the game right on the spot, I mean, he, he, he made a diving play, tried to get an out uh, at second base, throw was late, uh, but it was a great attempt and a good play by Steer. And then he tried to come up. I know the x-rays say he's okay, said after the game last night. But he did not look good. You can only hope that um, that this is not a big deal because he's become a, a very important part of this team and I think future for this team. He looks like a keeper, that guy. Yeah, it looked like, I'm just reading it now, everybody's saying after the game that it looks like David Bell said we'll know more, I guess, today, as we would, as we would say it, we'll know more uh, this afternoon. But, yeah, he's been playing really well lately. Really well. And yep. It's nice to see, like I said last week, it's nice to see some signs in the positive direction. Positive signs in the right direction. That's, that's what we can take away right now. I'm seeing, I'm seeing Sir Boy say that he, he could be rookie of the year. Or someone said that. Well, I mean, he keeps playing like he's playing. You know, there's, there's always a chance they could have a couple of them on there. I mean, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look and see if, if Ashcraft, because he, he pitched for a little while and then he was out for a long time. If he is technically a rookie this year. I think Lodolo probably pitched too many innings last year, but I don't know about Ashcraft. Uh, there's a There are numbers, whether it be from a, a position player for uh, at-bats, plate appearances, service time, all these kinds of things, which, you know, maybe you're only up for part of the year and you come back the next year, but you're still a rookie. Um, same thing for pitchers. Uh, I believe that he is, but, but uh, don't know for sure. We'll ask Bob about that here in a minute. Let me know when he's ready to go. I'll let you know. So do you feel like when you – so, so far, the Reds are where they are, four games under 500. They split a four-game series against Philly, Tampa Bay, and town tonight. You feel hope, a little more hope, Paul. Yeah, you, sure. You do. Yeah, I mean, it's more fun to sit down and watch the games this year than last year when there was just no hope. I said that last week. It just feels like at least this year there's, there's a little – you get some excitement. You get some fun. You get something. You feel something. You feel something. Now, over the weekend, you didn't feel great. But you feel something, at least. Well, Casey felt the roar of the, uh, the thunder of the uh, fireworks show. I did. How do you sit there? And Paul asked you the question off the air before we went on the air. What was the music theme? The music and you theme. said you have no idea. Well, like I said, I was more I was more enamored by the fact that when we were done with the game, we went down to the tunnel where the players leave and where the coaches leave and staff leaves and Hunter Green just pulls right up to all those kids and starts signing autographs and very cool. You know, I, and also I was listening to the Reds our Reds post game on my phone right. at the same time while enjoying the fireworks. Enjoying that. That's a company man right there. I wanted a <laughs> fireworks show, and he's got his phone pulled up. Listening his new to nickname is CM. Company man. Company, Company man. man. Casey McAllister. How about that? Very nice. I like it. It's not as, it's not as good as Big League Paul. Oh, so it's not as good as Big League Paul. But I'll take CM. I'll take it. Okay. That, that, you know what? If you're if, Being Reds fans, uh, as many of you are, that show here with Trace and Nick is excellent. 
It really is. I mean, I know a lot of people, the easy thing to do, maybe you're at the game and you're jumping in your car and you'll turn on that extra inning show, which has been around forever, and that's fine. But, um, you know, Trace knows baseball. Nick Kirby knows baseball. And so I would highly recommend uh, if, you know, you're jumping in your car, coming back from a game, or you watch it on TV and you want to hear a little bit more about it, tune into the show. It's right after the games. Is Bobby ready to go? He is ready. All right. Let's bring in Bob Nightingale Jr., kind enough to join us. He covers the Reds each and every day for Cincinnati.com, the Cincinnati Inquirer. Uh, Bobby, uh, no rest for the weary. Roll right into a new series. Uh, Let me ask you, I want to start, first of all, with Joey Votto. Uh, You were down there. You had a chance to talk with him over the weekend when he came back from his stint in Louisville. Uh, The rules and regulations wouldn't allow him to continue to stay. I know they can send him back out. What what were your impressions of what he had to say uh, when he had a chance to visit with you guys over the weekend? Yeah, I think he was more optimistic than I thought he would be. I mean, if you look at his numbers in Louisville, he's striking out in about half of his at-bats, which you guys have seen Joey Votto. That's not his game. Um, you know, he, he's a guy who doesn't strike out a ton. So, I mean, it's alarming when you see that. Um, but he's confident. I mean, his shoulder's improving. He's talked about kind of where it was a month ago to where it is today. It's night and day. Um, so it's all encouraging. Things are moving in the right direction. It's just not fast enough where – Looking at the stats, I think it's pretty obvious, like, he, he's not major league ready. Um, and so he's, he admits that, and the, the Reds obviously take him off the rehab assignment. Um, when you, you could have pushed it a little bit where you could have tried to get it down to the last day, but I think there was a realization, like, um, you know, that you're going to need more than a week to get this figured out. And I think it just points to – it was an extensive surgery. I mean, he had surgery for a torn rotator cuff and damage to his biceps. There's a lot of hitters that – would probably take a year to get back from that. He tried to come back in eight months. Um, so it's taking a little bit longer, but um, he, he was more optimistic than I thought he would be. All right. By the rules of the CBA, <laughs> what logically is next for him, do you think? Restart a rehab assignment this weekend. Um, you, you have to take at least five days off as a position player. If, um, but you still have to have an injury. So, I mean, it is a legitimate. His shoulder is bothering him. It is affecting his swing. I think that's why he's, the strikeouts are up, and he said as much. And people that have watched him in AAA, scouts, all say kind of the same thing that, you know, kind of the range of motions kind of holding him back in his shoulder. Um, but you can restart one within five days after being taken off. So I, I think when the team goes to Pittsburgh, he'll go back and restart his 20-day rehab assignment in Louisville. All right, um, another move, Connor Overton, who has struggled to begin this season as part of the starting rotation. That was the case again on uh, Friday night. Um, And now Luke Weaver. We were talking about Weaver before you came on the program. 29 years old, former number one pick of the Cardinals, uh, was in the Paul Goldschmidt trade, goes to Arizona. He's bounced around uh, since then, had a shoulder injury. What did you see out of him in spring training? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, just a guy, his changeup is really a big weapon for him. Probably not a guy that you'd put in the same tier as the, the three starters that the Reds have right now, Hunter Green, Nicoladolo, Graham Ashcraft. I don't think his upside's that high. But he could be kind of like a reliable number four for them. Um, David Bell was in the Cardinals organization when he came up with the Cardinals. And he debuted kind of like the same way Hunter Green did, like really young, maybe 22, 23 years old when he made his debut. Um, been around and he's still only 29. So, I mean, he's a guy who, in his past, has had huge upside. He just dealt with a ton of injuries over the last few years. 
Um, he really hasn't thrown much of a slider. I know that's kind of been an emphasis for him in spring training was kind of developing that. And Derek Johnson's done a really good job in terms of helping guys add sliders and making them really good. Uh, look at Graham Ashcraft as an example for that. Um, so the Reds see some untapped upside there. Um, it's just a matter of can he stay healthy, which, you know, he had trouble with that in the spring, had a minor setback, and then something that's bothered him in the past. Um, but also he realizes it's kind of his last chance to start. So I think, um, you know, it's important for him to, for his career, if he wants to remain a starter, uh, which he does, to have success with the Reds, um, you know, kind of right out of the gate. All right, he's going to get a chance uh, to make a number of starts. Um, Sessa, what are they going to do there, you think? I think maybe you play it out, maybe a couple more starts, but he's got to be on kind of the last of leash right now. If, if he does get moved from the rotation, I, I expect him to get moved to the bullpen, which sure. he's had success there. Um, he's out of minor league options, so there's really your only two choices are put him in the bullpen or uh, cut ties with him, and I don't, I don't see them cutting ties with him. I mean, so – a rough start to the season for him. He's giving up a ton of hard contact. Um, there, there are some guys in AAA, like Chase Anderson, who's a veteran, uh, Levi Stout, who's a prospect, and then you have one prospect in AA, Andrew Abbott, who's been completely lights out. He struck out 25 of the 35 batters he's faced. Um, but it would be quite a jump to go from two starts in AA to the big leagues and for, for a guy that wasn't really on the big league radar to start the season. So... There are options if they want to make a change. I just don't know. They, they might give him one or two more um, just to see if he can rebound. You know, I, I'm just curious when, when you sit here and you think about it, Bobby. We all know um, – I think apathy is the word more so than necessarily people, you know, just being down on the franchise. I think there's just a lot of apathy out there. They've, they've been fun to watch, a lot more fun to watch for sure the first – you know, two weeks of this season than they were the first two weeks of first month of last season, for that matter, when they start three and 22. Um, but, you know, I, I made the comment before you came on the air, I, you know, and it's nothing against Luke Weaver, uh, but it's just that I feel like with, you know, when, when, when Lodolo and Ashcraft and Green are going out there, um, I think it gives the Reds fans some hope. And there hadn't been a lot of hope for a little while. Um, and, and I just ask myself, why not bring up, you know, Stout, as you're talking about, or Abbott? I mean, Abbott was a guy at the University of Virginia. You're not talking about some high school kid that pitched, you know, two and a half years in the minor leagues. I mean, he's pitching in the ACC for three years, and then all of a sudden now he's pitching minor league baseball for the last two. Um, you know, why not bring up a younger guy like that to give the fans something to get excited about? I mean, I think they'll reach that point probably the second half of the season when you start seeing more prospects come up. I just think they're they're really focused on making sure bringing guys up isn't going to do harm and hurt their development. I mean, if you remember last year, like Hunter Green, the first couple months of his season, uh, he was getting hit around. Like his fastball was extremely hittable, gave up a ton of home runs, had a lot of rough starts. You could see kind of the flashes of potential, but his numbers weren't good, I mean, until maybe around the all-star break, the second half of the season when um, he started to be a little bit more consistent. Same with Nicoladolo. He struggled um, in his first few starts and then missed a couple months with a back injury. Um, so I think it's one of those, yeah, those guys are talented. Yeah, they want to they want, they want push them, and I think they're getting pushed pretty quickly. I mean, wouldn't be shocked if Andrew Abbott's next step is, after another start or two, is AAA, mm -hmm. uh, which for a guy who was drafted two years ago is pretty quick. Uh, but I, I do think that's kind of the primary concern is – yeah, it'd be great to see these young guys. Yeah, some of them might be kind of knocking on that door, but it's also, 
you've seen it where it kind of backfires and you call guys up a little bit too early. I think Jose Barrero is probably an example of that. Um, when they called him up in 2020 before he played above a ball um, just to help out for a playoff run. And it's taken him a few years just to get comfortable at the big league level again. You know, there is a guy, and I wasn't going to ask you about him until you just brought up his name. I, I think that is the perfect example. Um, I'm all for getting guys through the system and getting them up here. But there are times and cases and point in individuals where you're like, okay, maybe we this guy we shouldn't. And it's no knock on him and his metal wherewithal or any of that kind of thing. It's just that some guys are more ready than other guys. Um, is Barrero starting to change the narrative on maybe where he was, say, three, four weeks ago, even before spring training started with the way he's playing so far this year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he's at least – I think you can put him at shortstop and feel good about it, which I don't think you could have said at the end of last season when he was striking out. 40% of the time he came up to the plate and uh, looked really lost offensively. I mean, he still has ways to go to be an impact offensive player, but I think you at least can put him out there and say, okay, this is our starting shortstop. He's going to play – uh, pretty solid defense. He's going to give you at least a decent at bat. Um, so, I mean, those are improvements. And you, you have to remind yourselves, I mean, he's still the second youngest player other than Hunter Green. He's the second youngest player on the team. Um, so, I mean, there's still ways he can still continue to grow. Um, you kind of see him tap into his power a little bit more. He's just a guy, if he can play, if he can continue to improve his defense, if he just hits 240, um, you know, that, that's a solid shortstop on most teams. Now the Reds are hoping they have a lot of shortstop prospects coming up that'll you know, continue to push them. But, um, you know, that's not a bad place to start. Steer, uh, I know they said x-rays were okay after the game last night. But, but you know, when I see a guy, and you've followed baseball your whole life, Bobby, and been around the game, um, when I see players walk off the field taking themselves out of the game, an x-ray might tell you one thing. How that guy feels might tell you another. Um, did you get any feel for that besides the x-rays were okay? Yeah, I think we'll find out more today just to see how sore it is. But him, I saw him walking around the clubhouse, and he looked fine. Like, if you, if you didn't know he exited the game with an injury, you wouldn't have thought twice about it. So I thought that was at least a good sign that, um, you know, he wasn't limping or anything after the game. Um, obviously a huge part of their team, so they need him to be healthy. All right. Well, Bobby, we cannot uh, thank you enough for your time as always. And um, it's going to be fun watching the Rays down there. Um, you know, before I let you go, I, I, and, I, and I'm going to get somebody on from Tampa certainly uh, sometime soon, hopefully somebody in their front office. I, I think a lot of people, Bob, ask, what is Tampa doing that other teams, you know, the mid-market, the small market, I mean, I, and I mean really getting down to what are they doing that some of these other teams are not doing? Do you have any feel for that? It's probably not a fair question because you don't cover that franchise on a daily basis. I just think that the biggest difference when you look at the small market teams that have success, whether it's Tampa Bay, Oakland, when they were at their best, I mean, the main thing is they have young players who are all in their prime together, which when you're talking about a player's prime is usually between like 25 and 30. Um, you need at least some elite talent, which that means you have to draft or trade extremely well to bring that in if you're going to be small market because you can't sign them from the outside. Um, and then you need all those guys to kind of be in their prime together. I mean, I think that's kind of – you look at, like, Houston. I think, I think you know, they're, they're obviously a bigger market. Um, but the way they tore everything down to the studs, yep. um, that's kind of how they've done it. I mean, they you look at kind of their pitching staff. Um, they had Justin Verlander and Zach Greinke, but everyone else is kind of, you know, 25, 30 in that range. Alex Bregman, George Springer, Jose Altuve, all those guys came up together. 
Um, and so I think that's what Tampa Bay does extremely well. Um, you, you could probably say they're a little bit more cutthroat in terms of when their stars are getting close to making big money. Um, they trade them, and they, they have to do well in those trades. I mean, I think that's the reason Cleveland has done so well. Um, and they have a lower payroll than the Reds, I believe. And it's just one of those, they trade extremely well. Um, they keep their stars. If, like Tampa Bay just uh, did a big contract with Wander Franco, um, their star shortstop. You see Cleveland do the same thing with Jose Ramirez. So they're keeping their stars, but they're also making sure everyone around them is in their prime. And, um, you know, I, I think that's kind of, it, it kind of goes backwards for baseball economics because most guys get paid when they're older uh, versus younger. Um, so I think that's the one thing that small market franchises have to keep in mind is, you know, if, if you're going to be a little bit cutthroat with your star players, um, you have to make sure you're building around them with the same, with, with their same age. All right, Bobby, we uh, thank you for your time, my friend, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks again. Have a good day. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Bob Nightingale Jr. Bobby, Bobby Nightingale Jr. All over the Red Legs. And uh, good stuff there. You know, the, 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 the other thing is, he points out about Tampa Bay. The other thing, and I, I, this is something I, I, that, that I'm going to really try and find somebody that we could get on who can discuss this intelligently from the inside. And it's what we've talked about with Tracy Jones a lot and other people. It's not only drafting well, okay, which Tampa Bay must do, I think most of their best players, as he pointed out, are coming over as well in trades when they're deciding to get rid of this guy or get rid of that guy or whoever it might be. The Chris Archer deal a few years ago with, with, with the Pirates is a prime example of some of the guys they get back and now all of a sudden they're good for a couple of years, they ship them off. Now, a lot of fans don't like that. I mean, they want their guys hanging around, somebody to latch on to, and there's something to be said for that. But I'm more interested in what their player development is. I want to know, are the Rays paying their double-A pitching coach more money than maybe some other teams are paying their double-A pitching coach? Are they paying their um, pitching coordinator in the minor leagues more than the Dodgers are paying their guy? I don't know. That's what I would like to know because – Every bit as important, if not more important, in baseball is player development once you get them. Because at the end of the day, okay, at the end of the day, there's a huge pool of players which everybody has access to. Everybody does. Some might spend more in their scouting department than others. Some might spend more in the Dominican than others. Some might spend more in Venezuela than others. But at the end of the day, there's this huge pool of players. Okay, so it does separate, you know, how you draft. I really think at the end of the day, most teams, if you did a 15 or 20-year sort of recap of their draft, everyone has hits, everyone has misses. But when you get them into your organization, who is then developing those players to get better? You're getting them anywhere from... Dominican players, you're getting them in your academies down there at, at 16. You can start signing them in the Dominican at 16 years old. If you're drafting me in the United States, you're getting 17 and 18-year-olds out of high school. You're getting 20, 19-year-olds out of junior college. Um, you're getting 22-year-olds out of four-year schools. You can draft them after their third year in Division One. You're getting the same guys, okay? What's development? look like 
And we've got to find that out about the Tampa Bay Rays. All right, Ham and Eggers, we got a lot of football coming up today. One of the most legendary voices in sports over the last 35 years, I worked with him in Chicago, is Wayne Larrabee. He was the voice of the Chicago Bears. He was a television voice of the Chicago Bulls during the Jordan era. He moved on and has been the voice of the Green Bay Packers for many, many years. Lots to talk about with Wayne Larrabee coming up today. That'll be in about uh, 12 minutes. And then at 11.30, we are going to talk with Justin Rogers from the Detroit Free Press up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. He covers the Lions, your team, Casey McAllister. That's my Your guys. Detroit Lions. Dan Campbell. So we got, that's right, Dan Campbell. Chris Spielman. <laughs> All right, Ham and Eggers, take it away. It's that type of the show, the ham and eggers. These guys are great, trust me, I would know. I introduce all the best segments. All right, Tom talked about the Bengals, and that is what we'll be talking about I, a little bit, a little bit with the Bengals today, players reported today. Bengals report is brought to you by Encore Technologies. Encore Technologies provides IT solutions for a data center world with a suite of services from mobile computing to desktop to data center, supporting both centralized and work-from-home computing models to improve efficiency and productivity. I thought I could do the whole thing. Visit Encore.tech. The path to innovation begins here. There's also a new premium alkaline water out. I don't have it in front of me because I just put it in the refrigerator to get it in between off the bench and box lunch. Wanted it chilled today. Usually we get it. It's room temperature. I was like, you know what? I want a cold pony water today. Threw it in the fridge. We'll get it in a few minutes. And by a few minutes, I mean an hour and 10 minutes. But it does taste good. In fact, it tastes great. And it's made right here in Hamilton, Ohio. It uses natural limestone filtration, unlike the artificial processing that many other brands use. The result is a healthy alkaline water that is also the best tasting water in the world. Visit their website at pontywater.com. Check this out. Here, put it, put it in front of the camera. I'll put that, it right here. That's what they send you. Hold on. Let me, make sure, let, me get it, let me get this whole thing set up here. Make sure I can see it. There we go. Send you a little Pawnee box. water. Pawnee water. Visit pawneywater.com. That is P-A-H-H-N-I water.com. P-A-H-H-N-I water.com to see where you can buy this great tasting water. Drink Pawnee water. Get your coffee from UDF, bet with Betfred, and get your technology solutions from Encore.tech. Uh, I had something I was just about to say, and now I cannot remember what I was going to say. Pub the podcast. Podcast? Yes. Hey, if you are not uh, yet subscribed to any of our podcasts here, make sure you go and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere that you can find your podcast. Off the Bench is available, but also every other podcast that we do. Chatterbox Reds is available there. Box Lunch. We need more subscribers to Box Lunch and Podcast Form because that's one of the best shows that we do here. And Reed puts a lot of time, effort, and energy into that. So make sure you go subscribe to Box Lunch. Um, Not Too Picky is on there. The Rebound Rundown is on there. The Mental Game is on there. All the podcasts are in the channels that you can find. Leave ratings and reviews. Uh, you can do all that. Make sure you go like and subscribe to the channel, too. We see 18 likes in here. We had over 1,000 likes for the Oklahoma stream. Yes. Over 1,000. 1,000. 
I mean, Eight, what was it? Sixteen thousand. So I turned on the Oklahoma stream in the in between the doubleheader uh, at Xavier on Saturday, and I watched it for a long time. Went back and watched most of it later, and uh, sixteen thousand concurrent viewers. Sixteen, eighteen thousand. They brought it. Oklahoma brought it. Hey, when you're when, what, what back-to-back national champs, is that right? Yep. Well, when you're back-to-back national champs, you're going to bring it. Oh, yeah. It's an expired, exciting sport to watch when, when it's played well. It is. I mean, it's a really exciting game. Um, and especially once they get to the tournament. By the way, how did your Xavier Musketeers do against UConn over the weekend? They went in with, I'm not mistaken, what, a 13-game winning streak? 11-game uh, winning streak. 11-game winning streak. Yeah, it, it was... It was a weird. It was kind of. It was kind of a weird weekend because they they went one and two, but they had the lead in both of the win or both of the losses. They were winning nine to seven with one out in the ninth inning. Um, oh boy, that hurts! And gave up two two run home runs and lost by Ooh. two. So yeah, Hayden Field is one of the smallest parks in the country. So you get a line drive to left field that would be a three hundred and ten foot you know line out anywhere else, and it's getting out. So. But yeah, it was it was an exciting weekend of uh, play around the diamond all over the tri-state area. Brian wants to know if Oklahoma, much like the days of Baker Mayfield, did they plant the flag in the middle of Miami's softball stadium? No, they actually did something much much more respectable. And really, they, what they, they do? They took their team and. Miami and uh, Louisville as well, and I think they all got around the the pitcher's mound and did a little prayer and very nice, very respectable. So that's what you get from the heartland of America, not from the you know liberal elites like Paul on the coast, <laughs> on the East Coast and the West Coast. See, in the heartland of America, like Oklahoma, Ohio, Kentucky, flyover. How did I find for myself, the elites? How did I find myself backed into this corner? <laughs> it's an easy target. Hey, basketball over the weekend, and we'll have time to talk about it later. Uh, any impressions from either one of you guys about the opening round of the uh, NBA, opening games, technically, of the NBA playoffs? They continue tonight. Any yeah. impressions? Anything stand out? Yeah. Austin Reeves had a great game yes, for LA. Yes, he did. Austin Reeves, yeah, he, he played really a former Oklahoma player. Former Oklahoma. I watched Austin Reeves and Brady Manick play for Oklahoma at Cintas. They played Xavier uh, during the COVID year, and there was it was when the arena was empty. I'll never forget it because it was one of the most it was one of the best offensive performances Xavier has ever put up, and there was nobody there to see it, and it was bizarre. It was the empty arena. Xavier scored almost a hundred points that game. I think made like I don't know fifteen threes or something crazy in that one. Uh, anyway, yeah, Reeves had a great game. L.A. LeBron. It's good to see Le- – I, I like seeing LeBron succeed yes. like that. Um, and then I'm trying to think, Chris Paul and the Suns, man, Russell Westbrook. How about that? Did you see that last night? Yeah, I mean, you know, my son pointed out to me uh, when the trade happened because we were out in Arizona, and he said to me, he says, Dad, he says, you know, and I don't pay attention, much attention to it during the regular season. He says, listen, he says, they traded away some really good players on this deal to get Durant. Yeah. And they said, and he made the comment to me, and he, we were talking about it again this morning. He said, go look up the plus-minus numbers of that Phoenix bench in the game last night. They did not have one player that came off their bench that was in the plus column. Oof. And that's where L.A. got him, the Clippers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I'll be honest. I didn't watch. I, I stayed up last night to the end of the Nuggets game just in case anything big happened. Um, but I didn't watch every minute of it. I just stayed up just in case anything was going to happen to talk about. But it was a, a Nuggets blowout win. Nuggets are going to roll, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Nugget, nuggets, I mean, that, I guess that's just what we're doing here. Nuggets are Nuggets are going to roll. Um, but what about Milwaukee? Yeah, Giannis being hurt. Get the charge out of basketball. Get the charge out of basketball. John Morant, Giannis, both hurt on yep. the charge. It is the, it is the lamest – the lamest thing you can do in sports actually, is what? actually trying is take a freaking charge in basketball. Why is that I lame? I hate it because all you because it's just showing that you, you don't know how to defend. All you do is slide in front, stick your hands down in front of you in front of your private parts and slide over and fall down and you get rewarded for it instead of actually trying to play competitive defense. I hate it. And I know you can't actually get it out of the sport because like there has to be an element of offensive penalty so you can't get it you can't completely remove it but there has to be a way that they can change the charge call that you don't just slide it's worse it's much much worse in college than it is in the NBA much worse yes doesn't happen nearly as often in the NBA No, because who's getting in front of LeBron yeah like yeah Carl Anthony Towns had that one uh, back in the play-in game It, it just doesn't it's just so I hate it I hate it. I've, I've hated it for years. I actually, it was funny. I, about two or three college basketball seasons ago, I tweeted about it so much that somebody texted me and goes, I appreciate what you're doing, but you got to give it up on the charge thing because that's all you're doing is tweeting about it. I haven't tweeted about it in the last couple of years because I realized I was, I felt like I was bogging myself down in negativity about the charge and I realized it was a losing cause, so I gave it up. See, Paul, but, you can't wilt to the pressure. Well, I was a one lone voice in the wilderness. It took a beating from fans like you and everybody else about baseball and the pace and the slow and the game was dying and it was boring to watch and people killed me for it. I'll still fight the good fight, but I just don't got to fight it. I just don't need to tweet about it every single time there's a charge. Big League Paul, don't back down, says Nick Kirby. Oh, I'm not backing down. I just don't need to clog everybody's feed because I was literally tweeting about it almost every charge where I would watch in college basketball. And then I realized after the whole season of doing it that I was tweeting it two to three times a night. And I just, I I go, I got to stop doing this. I don't want this to be my identity. (laughs) There's more to my life than the charge. But yeah, no, it's terrible. Something just needs to be fundamentally fixed with it because I think in general, it's a, you have to have, an element where an offensive player is penalized for playing out of control and running through a defensive player, but just sliding over and not playing, uh, you not not giving any effort defensively and just trying to slide in front, fall down and get rewarded for it. And then the referees don't know how to adjudicate it. And they, they, you know, they'll reward a flop, whatever. Oh, we, we have more important things to cover on this show right now than to let me go on and on for now. Cause I could do an hour on the charge if you wanted to. Could do a whole show on it, but well, Wayne, um, Wayne is in perhaps here. Perhaps we, we will. Perhaps yeah. we will. Yeah. Uh, I like Bacon wants to know, Casey. Has anyone been banned from the chat yet today? You sent <laughs> our you sent our show, our building show. Yeah. Right to the tank one day last week. All right. Um, one of my favorite guys, and 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 I mean, if you want to listen to a guy do play-by-play, uh, you could put this on a, a shelf and put it on your TV, on your radio, whatever, 
and it, there's no finer play-by-play announcer over the last 30 years in multiple sports uh, than Wayne Larrabee, who now, after uh, being associated, if you will, in Chicago sports for a long time, the Bulls and the Cubs and the Bears, he's a Packer guy now for a long time. Wayne Larrabee, how are you, my man? You never age a day. <laughs> That's not true, and you know it. <laughs> and by the way, I never looked good young, so um, what am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, you've hey, always uh, looked way, who great. Were you talking about when you were leading into me, I, that, I, I don't reflect that individual. <laughs> yes, you do, Wayne. Yes, you do. I mean, uh, to, to listen to you do games, uh, and that's coming from a guy who did play-by-play -play to another. I mean, your calls are just off the charts every single event you do, whether it was Big Ten Network, you know, going way back to your early start in Texas, I think it was. You were down there, then get the Kansas City Chiefs job, uh, and then on to Chicago from there where you did it all, and now with the Packers. Uh, Wayne, look, um, it just seems like, and for you it's got to be a lot worse than it is for, for us here in Cincinnati because we don't follow it all the time, but we find ourselves talking about it all the time. <laughs> where does this whole Aaron Rodgers say? Where is it? Where is it going? Does anybody know? I don't know if anybody knows for sure, Tommy, but, you know, uh, it's got to be heading to a deal with the New York Jets. You just think – my my one theory that was advanced to me and that it kind of makes sense is that we may not know anything until draft night because the two teams probably have a deal already done, but it's contingent on how the first round of the draft unfolds. And I'm talking about maybe the first 10 to 12 picks. Because the Packers would like to move up to that number 13 pick and, you know, flip picks with the Jets. Go from 15 to 13, the Jets fall back to number 15. Now, what I think is contingent upon that is the right offensive lineman or linemen still being, being available. Because that's what the Jets need with their number one pick. They need an offensive tackle. And if one of those guys starts slipping, which certainly could happen, um, then maybe... The Jets are comfortable saying, hey, we can get our guy at number 15. So we'll flip picks with the Packers and maybe we throw a third or a second round in there. Um, maybe there's no conditional pick the following year and we get this Rodgers deal done right away. So it's it's kind of complex because of the Rodgers contract. But I do think um, the Packers would like to flip picks. They'd like to get a second round pick in this draft and see where it goes from there. You know, it, it seems, though, Wayne, and, uh, that, that there, there are just so many, you know, twists and turns to this whole thing. I mean, even just recently where all of a sudden I, I know that uh, uh, Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets, has all of a sudden let people know we're not giving up a first-round pick because, you know, Rodgers then starts to kind of hint about retirement again. Um, it just seems like – it seems like he, he's playing chess with a couple of different organizations and a whole lot of people here in this operation. Is that fair to say, or is that unfair to say? Well, it depends on who's playing chess. I mean, I think Aaron's kind of sitting there. Um, Woody Johnson uh, is the guy. Now, I, again, Tom, we're in the lying season in the NFL. This is when it's legal to lie to everybody if you're an NFL team or an you know, NFL person. Um, so we're in the lying season. Now, the latest, this came out last week, the Woody Johnson um, is kind of pushing back on what the Jets were, were offering to get this deal done. Uh, and it, it's incumbent upon them to get this deal done and get Rodgers into camp. 
um, and get him into the offseason program because he's got all kind. He's all new people to work with for the most part. Um, now, Woody Johnson apparently has cold feet. Woody Johnson is the guy who basically is the guy who got behind this thing mm-hmm. and generated this whole deal in the first place. It didn't come from the general manager. It didn't come from the head coach. But Woody Johnson is the guy who re- – and he led the br- – uh, brigade of people went out to California to visit in person with Rogers, that type of thing. So I find it hard to believe that Woody Johnson is pushing back on this deal. Did they want to give up a number one draft choice? Not this year. Would they give up a conditional number one draft choice next year? That might be what the Packers are holding out for. All right. Let, let, let's, let's talk about the team and assume for a second. Well, well, before I do that, do you envision any scenario because right now he's still under contract with the Green Bay Packers. But do you envision any scenario that could have something positive about it or just any scenario in general where Packer, uh, where Rodgers is back with the Packers this year? Wow. <laughs> well, Mark Murphy said it himself. He's the president, uh, CEO and president of the team. He said, hey, listen, if we don't get what we want, I mean, it's possible Rodgers could come back. Um, but, you know, Part of what this, part of how we got here, Tom, is that, you know, if if you bring back Aaron Rodgers, you're essentially running back what you had last year. Because with Rodgers comes basically Randall Cobb. Um, you're keeping the veteran uh, at tight end, Mercedes Lewis. You probably would have re-signed um, Alan Lazard, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, the Packers don't want to run back last year. You don't run back eight and nine you run back 13 and four you try to run that back but you don't run back eight and nine and that's part of where the Packers were and and if you go back to where this all began after the season I think the Packers were fine with Aaron Rodgers being their quarterback they wanted him to be their quarterback but they knew that they were going to have to restructure uh, offensively and that they weren't going to bring back Cobb and Lewis and Lazard um, they weren't going to bring those guys back. Uh, and as Aaron looked at that, he says, well, that's then you're rebuilding. And he doesn't want any part at this stage of his career in a rebuild. So that's kind of how they got to where they're at. Um, but right now, I, I don't see a scenario whereby Rodgers comes back into this camp um, with Jordan Love being basically announced as the starting quarterback. I don't think anybody at this point in time can make any kind of uh, definitive sort of declaration about what kind of quarterback uh, Jordan Love will be or won't be. But clearly the Packers, this is a year they need to find out uh, what this guy is capable or not capable of. Uh, What's kind of the vibe uh, about him around the camp? He's never been the guy, obviously, with Rodgers still there. But what's the feeling about him as a player and, and a leader? Tommy, uh, you are so right. Um, Number one, nobody knows what this guy is going to be like at quarterback. He has come in, and I'll tell you this, he's come in um, with all this noise around him for three years, all right? He has lockered uh, two doors down from Aaron Rodgers, one locker between the two of them, okay? He has stood there every day. Um, he's talked with the media when the media's wanted to talk with him. He has made progress. He came in. His first year was a typical redshirt year for a player. He came in with COVID. Uh, the training camp was reduced to about three or four weeks. 
No game. Nobody had any chance. There were no games in the preseason that year. Um, they had to get two quarterbacks ready for the regular season. He was not one of them. He did not dress for a single game his rookie year. His rookie year actually was the following season, and he started to make some progress. It, it was incremental progress. Um, didn't look good on the surface at first. Um, started a game at Kansas City. Got the crap blitzed out of him in that game. Uh, struggled somewhat, but but kept his poise and led the Packers to a late touchdown in Kansas City and made a game of it against the Chiefs, a game they eventually lost. Then last year, um, you know, again, preseason games seemed to make some progress, but that's not the barometer you're looking for to judge a quarterback. Came in against Philadelphia in a mop-up role, basically, after Rodgers went out with an injury, played the fourth quarter, looked very sharp at Philadelphia. That's what everybody's banking on. So there's a lot of positive feel for um, Jordan Love because, Tom, he has worked at it. He knows the offense. He's done everything he can. Uh, Brian Gutekunst said, we don't need to see anything more. And what he meant by that was that it, it's not that he's confident this guy's going to be the next franchise quarterback. He's saying, We've seen all we need to see of this guy in preseason games, practices, running the scout team for whatever that means, uh, if on a mop-up role or filling in occasionally in a regular season game. We've seen all of that. What you don't know on a quarterback on this level in this game is will once you hand the keys to that guy, he's got to drive off the, uh, the lot, okay? And then you start finding out. Um, week after week, as defenses are scheming to stop him, then you start finding out, do you have a quarterback who can play in this league? Because you don't know until that happens. And it will take six to eight weeks or more to figure that out. But, you know, Wayne, you, you, I mean, you've forgotten more football than I know. But, but, but you and I both know. Uh, and you don't have to be some football savant to figure this out. Uh, frequently you're only as good, right, as those guys that are around you. And, and much has been made about, you know, the receiving core, the lack thereof when Rodgers has been there here since Adams walked out the door during last season. You mentioned they go eight and nine, although Rodgers did not look as sharp as he's looked in the past last year. I didn't think. He had some games where he did, but others he did not. But, you know, do you think they'll get a fair evaluation of love um, knowing that they might be uh, as a franchise, if Love is a starter, that would tell you they are in rebuild mode, right? Okay, so this is what we're going to do and where we are moving forward. Are you going to be able to get a good feel for what he's capable of doing or not doing based on those that are around him? That's a, that's a great point, Tom, and you're exactly right. Um, uh, will he have enough around him initially? Uh, let's go back to last year. It was the first time in my 24 and going on 25 years in Green Bay, the Packers did not have a bona fide number one receiver. First time. Aaron Rodgers played with a couple of rookies out there. He played with uh, Randall Cobb, who's still an effective slot receiver, but not the player he was 10 years ago, obviously, who is. Um, and Alan Lazard. Alan Lazard is being paid like the Jets as a number two receiver. On a good receiving core, Alan Lazard is a three. On a real good receiving core, he's a four. You understand? He was the Packers' lead receiver last year. So you get an idea of the way it went. They never overcame the loss of Devontae Adams, and Adams just didn't want to sign with the Packers. They offered him more money than the Raiders. He wanted to go to the Raiders. That's what he did. They worked out a deal. Um, but they never overcame that, and where we saw evidence of that 
was especially in the red zone where the Packers were dreadful. I believe they were 28th or 29th in the league in red zone touchdown production. So what do we have now? There's no Alan Lazard. There's no Robert Tunyon at tight end. Um, the Packers have a couple of promising second-year players, actually three uh, second-year wide receivers. Uh, they're going to have to get a veteran somewhere along the line, I think, into that receiver room. Maybe it's Randall Cobb if he doesn't sign with the Jets. I don't know. Um, but somebody. And now they've got to get tight end. And they have to get a tight end early in this draft, maybe as early as their first pick in the first round. So that's where they're at with Jordan Love. He has a good offensive line behind him, and he has an excellent running game, two excellent running backs. Um, the thing we're curious to see with Jordan, he has escapability. He has athletic ability. He has a big arm. All of those things that made him a first-round draft choice, he has all of that. And I think the mobility he brings to the position will open some eyes because in recent years, Aaron Rodgers could still move. He could still evade the rush. But, but his athleticism, his ability to, to run uh, wasn't quite as prominent. Uh, Jordan Love has more of that at this stage in his career. So we're anxious to see how that works out. But the receiving core, is it an accomplishment? Is it one of the top receiving cores in the league? In all honesty, probably not. Uh, I'm kind of curious because you've seen the game evolve over your 35-plus years broadcasting in the NFL. Uh, heck, it might. Are you, are you up to 40 yet? I'm being serious about it. Have you done NFL games for now for almost 40 years? I think it's around 45, 46, somewhere oh in that gosh. area. Oh, my gosh. I sold you short. Unbelievable. <laughs> it started in 78. <laughs> well, I want to ask you this because – and maybe you won't have the answer. Maybe it's an unfair question. You know, when you talk about the Rodgers saying and he got his huge contract prior to last year, uh, you know, here in Cincinnati, uh, everybody talking about Joe Burrow getting a huge deal. And it's interesting because as you and I are sitting here chatting right now, the news just broke about – Jalen Hurts becoming the highest paid player in NFL history today, getting $225 million on a five-year deal from Philly. More on that later. What I'm getting at is you mentioned the Packers tried to sign Adams. Okay, he had made the decision he wanted to go to the Raiders. That's where he ended up going. They had already paid Rodgers. Around here in Cincinnati, you know, a lot of people are sitting here wondering, something's got to give because you've got Burrow, whose deal is up. you got T. Higgins who, though you've got some still con some con control over him, he's in line for a big money deal. Jamar Chase a year behind him, a big money deal. You know, can you pay three guys, you know, the quarterback over $40 million, two receivers anywhere from 20 to $30 million over the long haul and still have a good team around them? Well, the, the Bengals and, um, by the way, their general manager, Duke Tobin, has done a great job. They're in salary cap. They're in a precarious salary cap position going forward um, for this reason. They've done such a good job at drafting that now it comes time to pay those players. And the Packers have been in that situation. They made David Bakhtiari the highest paid offensive lineman in the history of the game. Aaron Rodgers, highest paid quarterback, history of the game. Jair Alexander, uh, highest paid cornerback, history of the game. And all these guys are highest paid. And Tom, at some point, that squeezes your salary cap. And, you know, that's what I think is going to be happening in the next few years in Cincinnati. They've done a great job of putting talent together. Um, Duke Tobin, by the way, when we were in Chicago, uh, Bill Tobin, his dad, was the architect of the Bears and one of the, the people behind the 85 Bears and putting that team together, one of the greatest teams in the history of the game. So, you know, to see Duke do this well is great. 
But, um, you know, the salary cap and free agency kind of levels the playing field. The salary cap and that you can't keep everybody. Um, but where you get into trouble with the salary cap, where most teams get in trouble, is they they indulge in free agency year after year, and then they can't they have no more room to pay guys. Well, the other the flip side of that is the Pittsburghs and the Green Bays, and now the Cincinnati's doing such a great job of drafting, and they want to keep these guys, but you can't keep everybody. So it's it, it's going to be perplexing to see what happens with that Cincinnati team that uh, that I thought got screwed out of that Super Bowl with that goal line call on the inside linebacker against the Rams. That was that was egregious. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're hoping. You know, it's been back-to-back AFC championship games around here in one Super Bowl, so we'll find out if they've got it. They certainly have uh, some decisions to make. They're not on the clock quite yet, uh, but they're they're knocking on that door. Um, when you look, last question for you, uh, Wayno. You know so much about the Bears. You know everybody in the division. We're going to be talking about the Lions a little bit later on. Um, when you look at the division for next year, uh, for this upcoming season, um, and, and Cousins uh, is going to be still in Minnesota. Um, how, how do you handicap that? Because it's a division that Green Bay has owned forever, and it doesn't look like they're going to own it for the immediate future. How do you see that division moving forward? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, those of us watching it closely last year, by the end of the season, the best team in that division was Detroit. Yeah. I mean, they trounced Minnesota in the final month of the season. They trounced the Vikings. And then they came out and beat the Packers when all the Packers had to do is win the game at Lambeau Field on a Sunday night, and they're in the playoffs. And the Lions had nothing to play for and still won the game. So let's start there. The Lions are the best team in the division at the moment um, based on where they finished last year. They didn't have the best record. Minnesota made the playoffs. Minnesota wasn't the best team in that division last year. Matter of fact, the Packers trounced Minnesota on New Year's Day. Uh, in Green Bay. So um, I, I look at the Lions right now. They've got a good young base they're putting together. It looks to me like it's a sustainable base. A lot will depend on how well Jared Goff plays going forward, but he was outstanding last year. The Vikings under Kirk Cousins, it, it's interesting, Tom, because they're reloading. They're trying to rebuild that defense, and, and it looks like they're going to have to do a certain amount of rebuilding on offense, too. Dalvin Cook probably won't be back at running back. You've got the Packers in their situation. Um, they The big problem last year, the big disappointment last year, wasn't so much the way the offense played, Tom. They expected that defense to be a solid top 10, maybe top five defense, and it was anything but. Uh, 17th in points allowed, 17th in yardage allowed, 28th in yards uh, per rushing attempt. Just not, it wasn't good enough based on the struggles they had offensively. And then you've got Chicago. Good young team building made an interesting deal trading away the number one draft choice. Now, they get a, they've got a number one this year, obviously, but the key to that deal was number one next year. Why? Well, because they aren't sure that their quarterback is the real deal, and they're going to take one more year to find out. And if he isn't, the quarterback class next year is much better than this year's, and the Bears will have two first-round draft choices to move up and down the board to get their quarterback next year if Justin Fields isn't the real deal based on what happens this coming season. What do you think of Fields? I think he's a great talent, Tom. I mean, he, his running ability is without question. Uh, he has all the tools you look for in today's quarterback. Dual-threat quarterback, big arm, makes all the throws. Here's what we don't know about him, and here's what they don't know about him. 
Is he a guy who has the innate quick twitch mentally that separates the great quarterbacks from the good to average quarterbacks? Can he read the defense at the snap of the ball? And that's what they don't know about yet. And as my friend Hub Arkish said, um, boy, the fact they don't know that yet, he's been around now for a few years, the fact they don't know that yet is probably one of the reasons why they insisted on getting an extra first-round rap choice for next year. Wayne Larrabee, it's been a pleasure, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, to join us here on the program. And, man, we're always rooting for you and always listening for you. Hey, Tommy, thank you so much. You know, some of the most fun I have ever had in broadcasting, I want to just tell the folks this for a minute, was when you and Santo and Stoney and I used to go out and play golf. Cover, We were doing Cubs baseball over those years, and we used to go out on the road on a, early in the morning uh, before a night game, and, <laughs> and the banter with Santo and Stoney and you, I've never laughed that hard in my life. Uh, yeah. You were a delight. You're a tremendous talent as a play-by-play guy and a delight to be around and uh, really enjoyed it, Tom, and so glad we were able to connect and and let's keep in touch because, uh, uh, you know, you, you're just one of the special people in this business. Well, Wayno, you're very kind to say so, my man. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll catch up sometime soon, I hope, buddy. Please do. All Thank right, you, Tom. Wayne Larrabee, kind enough to join us. That, that, guy, that, that guy knows his stuff right there. You guys ever really listened to him do a football game before? I'm not, but I, I want I, to now. It's unbelievable. I mean, the guy, he is. And I just say, I, I don't want to shortchange him. Because when he was doing the Bulls games in basketball, I mean, this this guy is a phenomenal broadcaster. Uh, Does a lot of Westwood One stuff and so on and so forth. Um, If I was running, whoever has the rights to the NFL, Westwood One or whoever it is, uh, when they get into the playoffs, uh, that's a guy I'd be hiring. Uh, if I had to, you know, I mean, you talk about a radio play-by-play guy. You feel like you are sitting right there. That's the guy. He is unbelievable. All right, how about this? Um, how about this Jalen Hurts news? Yeah, that's a big deal. This is a huge deal. Two hundred fifty-five million dollars on a five-year contract that makes him the highest-paid player in NFL history it includes nearly 180 million dollars guaranteed yeah um that lamar jackson contract uh (laughs) that's the first thing i thought of it makes it look like um lamar had a pretty good uh evaluation of himself um if you want to look at it in a way of Jalen Hurts is an MVP. He wasn't an MVP guy. Um, well, he would I have mean, been if he didn't get hurt. Hurts? This year. Oh, this, okay. He would have been very much in the in the middle of that conversation if he didn't miss four or five games at the end of the year. Well, regardless, I'm just saying that I think what Lamar was asking is not totally out of the realm of possibility of, you know, that's, that's the market. That's just what it is. Um, that's the first thing I thought of. Then the second thing I thought of was the guys that we haven't really – I mean, we've talked about Joe Burrow, but the Justin Herberts of the world and every other quarterback in the future going forward. Um, it's going to be – at least for Burrow, I, I expect it to be more than this. 
I really do. And I think the Bengals will make him the highest paid player in the NFL. Um, the guarantees were at 180. I don't know what the Bengals will do, but I expect it to be probably at 200 million guaranteed at this point, which is almost in that same realm of, I mean, it's, What's crazy to me is that Deshaun Watson had $250 million guaranteed, right? Or $240, $230, something like that. We're looking at a still a $50 million difference. That's the other thing that I thought of, too, was just how crazy that contract was. But, yeah, this is a big deal for, for all the quarterbacks right now in the NFL. I think this is a, it's the framework for, for Joe Burrow's contract. Hopefully uh, this didn't just blow up any negotiations that were – happening behind the scenes um your thoughts paul yeah nothing more than what you just said i it just i think the mvp conversation this year probably <laughs> spurred this one on a little bit more and now you're going to start to see i i think my only thought would be and it's not really even a thought it's more of a question is how does this impact burrow and if they were like you said casey down the line at all with a burrow deal does this have them uh does this give them any pause that they have to go back talk about anything maybe they're not i would love to know where they are in that conversation i'd just love to know where the Bengals are it's a good question it's a very good question you know you look at you look at some of the numbers and just and and, and look 2019 when when lamar jackson won the mvp i mean look on a calendar 2019 is not all that long ago but 2019 seems like a long time ago when it comes to Jackson being the MVP because the following year he leads his team, starts 15 of the 16, and they go 11 and 4. Well, since then, he has started 12 in each of the last two years. Jalen Hurts um, went to a 17-game schedule. Each of the last two, he started 15 games, right? Takes care of the ball. Um, let's shift gears. You heard Wayne Larrabee a moment ago talking about he felt without a doubt at the end of last season, the Detroit Lions were the best team without question um, in the NFC North. Um, they went into that last game playing at Green Bay. Uh, everybody was hoping it would mean a, a winner-take-all kind of thing. Didn't play out that way. It was for Green Bay. Uh, the Lions beat them up. Justin Rogers been covering the team for a long, long time up in Detroit. Justin, how are you, young man? Everything well with you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let, let's get right to it. Uh, we like to ask the questions, you know, where you been, where are you now, where are you going? Um, last season, um, so much to talk about with this Detroit team. What are the things that stand out to you? about the season the Lions had last year? Well, I think it starts with the offense, right? You go from 2021, where I was standing in training camp talking to another reporter, and I said, this might be the worst offense in the NFL, and and really um, wasn't a whole lot better than that. Um, to make some modest changes, I think, to, to the group, but the biggest one being the offensive coordinator, uh, bringing in Ben Johnson or promoting Ben Johnson from within. And uh, the thing really took off and they went from um, one of the worst offenses in the NFL to, to one of the best. Uh, turned Jared Goff into the 
Pro Bowl caliber quarterback he was in in Los Angeles in 2017, 2018, um, continued to maximize the, the talents he did have on the roster and I think lead to um, continued optimism with that group going into uh, this upcoming season. They um, they had the big run near the end of the year. Uh, I, I have always said, uh, I'm not sure at the end of the day there is a better fan base. When you consider this franchise has not won a playoff game, not one, going all the way back to 1999, and yet the crowds that show up, uh, great stadium, uh, phenomenal fan base, cynical, of course. Why wouldn't you be? Uh, but but what has Dan Campbell done besides him playing well and winning some games? But but just his personality and that kind of thing. He I mean he seems like he's just you know really giving a shot in the arm to all Lions fans. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know he comes in with the the introductory press conference, the the kneecap biting that um, garnered a lot of national attention, and that was a you know, 20, 30 second clip from what was an hour long press conference where he brought a, a consistently high level of energy. But I think the thing that really stands out about Dan Campbell is his genuineness. You know, there is a there's no pretense about this guy. There's there's nothing fake about what he's presenting, what you saw on Hard Knocks, what you saw in that um, press conference. He's uh, a little dorky, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of um I guess he presents himself like a meathead, but um, he's he's honest, he's caring, uh, he's straightforward with his guys, and you know he brings a unmistakable passion that um, you know makes guys want to rally to to be around him. I think the other thing that's unique about Dan Campbell is you know we we talk a little bit about the the Lions and their history and their their failures, and you know most people that come in here acknowledge that the history exists, but they don't embrace it because. They don't feel obligated to, you know, it's not, it's not their problems. The Lions lost for the the five or six decades before they got here. And um, fans don't always want to hear that. They want somebody to feel their pain, whether they were there or not. They want that empathetic quality. And, um, you know, Campbell having played here, um, you know, 15 years before he signed on as a coach, but he, he has this, this sense, that empathy for what the fans feel. And he's, embraced the Lions negative history and used it as a motivational tactic. He'll you'll the players on this roster know how long it's been since the, the franchise has won a division. They know how long it's been since the franchise has won a playoff game. There are signs up in the building that kind of acknowledge some of that stuff. And um I, I think it's been a positive that he's used the negative history as as motivation for the present. All right, I, I want to talk about two guys higher up the food chain uh, than, than um, Dan Campbell. Uh, I've known Chris Spielman for a long time. He was my broadcast partner um, with uh, Fox for a long time. Uh, you get that grin on your face. I mean, you, you start talking about Chris Spielman. I mean, you know, hey, look, you, you know, you knew him as a player and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, Look, he may not be directly responsible for all of the good things that are going on, but you talk about a guy that understands that history of the Lions because he was a great player right in the middle of all of it. And when the owner brings him in to sort of start, you know, helping decide who's going to be the coach, helping decide who's going to be the general manager, does Spielman get any credit for this whole kind of thing? Because he was brought in before those other guys were brought in. Yeah, you, you know Chris obviously very well, and um, you know he's not shy 
Uh, he's never been shy, but in this this current role, he's he's very much made sure that he's a background figure. He doesn't want the glamour or the praise. He he's just trying to do the job, um, the job of a humble servant, as he puts it. Um, you know, behind the scenes, and uh, was really grateful. He he gave me the chance to sit down with him um, a little bit before the combine there in February, and and we talked for an hour. And I just kind of caught up on on his role, but. Uh, you know, I think it was a hire that was met with a, a healthy mix of excitement because of his history with the franchise, the, the fan favorite that he was, um, and also skepticism because, you know, for all of his experiences, whether as a player or a broadcaster, it's a different role leading a franchise. And I think we've seen plenty of failed examples, including one in this town from the broadcast booth to uh, GM that, that failed miserably. So there's there's no guarantee in that working, but... Um, you know, I think ownership deserves some credit in, in targeting Spielman and bringing him in to serve as kind of a, a cultural liaison, somebody that could set a tone culturally within the organization across all levels of the organization. And his vast depth of knowledge that he gained from just talking to all the people in football that you guys do before every broadcast every week, you know, and, and, and building this depth of knowledge of what successful organizations have finding ways to f apply that in the interview process that brought Dan Campbell and, and general manager Brad Holmes here. I, I think, um, you know, Spielman does deserve a lot of credit. You know, again, credit goes to ownership for identifying him, but to bring in that voice, that football voice that could bridge a gap that maybe they didn't have, um, it, it has looked and proven to be a, a very smart hire. Okay, then there's Brad Holmes. Uh, I'm not sure you would know better than I do. I'm not so sure how many people looked at him as being a guy that was ready to take on this kind of job. And you mentioned the culture and, you know, is it the chicken or the egg about the whole thing and creating a, an environment that, that leads to winning or does winning create the environment? Um, Holmes has done an incredible job there. And, and he has not been shy at all about making moves leading right up just recently to last week, trading away Jeff Okuda. Yeah, I, I think Holmes came in, uh, I'll admit right now, you know, when I started doing the initial research of, of candidates when uh, the previous regime was was broomed out, uh, Holmes wasn't on my radar. Um, you know, just the, he, he fit the qualifications, right? He, he was a top level guy with a, uh, organization that had lots of success and that's what you look for but you know he was probably one that, that just missed the cut but what he's done really well was his strength coming into this job he was a college scouting director for the rams and uh, i think we know the rams propensity for dealing draft picks so he you know sometimes maybe didn't have the best assets in the draft to work with um but but had a, a pretty good and lengthy history with that organization um with with helping find talent at all levels of the draft and and that has continued here in Detroit um, he's he's done very well in his first two drafts and when you're tearing a, a franchise down to its foundation to its studs and and rebuilding it up from from scratch um, that's where you need to have success you know they were very conservative in free agency these two years they didn't want to tie up a lot of their money it was a lot of one-year deals uh, on on high risk maybe semi-high ceiling players a lot of prove-it deals uh, but really, the the heart of this whole operation has been the draft, and um, you know Holmes has has done very well. You know, no no GM hits on every pick; they they don't. But his his success rate uh, there, if you were great again, you you 
could easily say he deserves an A. And so, you know, now the the Lions are moving on to this this next stage of the rebuild, and they're actually starting to spend some money in free agency. Um, the big deal being uh, Cam Sutton, the cornerback from Pittsburgh. They're um, they're spending a little bit more freely. They've got still a good amount of draft assets st- stemming still from that Matthew Stafford trade when when Holmes first took the job. And um, I, I guess we see where it goes from here when he's asked to do a little bit wider, um, I guess, the aspects of the job when, he, when you expand the, the responsibilities beyond the draft and player acquisition to, to free agency. If he can hit there as well, the franchise is only going to continue to trend upward. Well, look, they, they uh, struggled in the secondary last year. Uh, that's no secret. Right now, they, they basically have overhauled that whole thing back there, including moving Okuda, uh, just trading him uh, for what? It was a fifth-round pick, I think it was. So, so now all of a sudden, um, you know, there, there, there's reason for optimism. If guys come in and play like the back of their quote-unquote bubblegum cards say, okay, Gardner Johnson's been brought in there. W- going into the draft – well, before we get to the draft, you, you touched on golf for a minute. I mean, look, this is a guy who, you know, he, you know, number one pick in the draft, Rams, whole nine yards, gets him rolling, blah, blah, blah. They make the deal the second he walks out the door. Stafford goes out to the Rams. He wins the Super Bowl. Golf comes in. You know, a lot like his career, he's kind of up and down. It, do you think that ultimately, or will it depend on his play this year, uh, whether or not they buy into him being the long-term guy, because he's still a relatively young guy. 28. Uh, 28 years old. And so I think the fact that Brad Holmes was heavily involved in scouting Jared Goff, in um, advising their general manager at the time to trade up to draft Jared Goff, there is a, a heavy amount of belief that was there uh before Goff even arrived in the building, you know, it was not seen as a throw into the acquisition or the trade with Matthew Stafford. It was not seen ever as a bridge quarterback. I think they, they genuinely hoped and believed that that Jared Goff would, would snatch the reins as the leader of this franchise. And again, show that, that pro bowl level skill set that he showed um, early in his career with the Rams. And uh, last year was a struggle or not last year, but two years ago was a struggle. And, and, there were plenty of reasons for that. Again, they tore it down to the studs. They they didn't give Goff a whole lot to work with. The offensive line was uh, dealing with multiple injuries that year. Um, d- disaster all the way around. Um, last year, they they got the fruits from that trade that they had hoped. Um, you know, Goff had maybe some some holes in his resume or skill set that you could point out in terms of how he deals with pressure or maybe his um, subpar deep ball and. Both of those, I thought he he acquitted himself very well last year, um, and no more so than the 329 consecutive passes he ended the season with without interception. So um, it, it's always a year-to-year business, uh, especially when a massive contract extension is, is coming up due here shortly. Um, but I, I do believe this franchise and Brad Holmes believe in Jared Goff, and I, I think he's plan A for their future. Um still uh david montgomery is a young man grew up just right down the road here in uh cincinnati uh williams was a guy last year in detroit what was it that prompted basically williams going out montgomery coming in it's it's strictly the the willingness to not be emotionally attached and being prepared to upgrade at any spot at any given time 
Um, Jamal Williams was outstanding here for what he was signed to do um, culturally uh, on the field production locker room leader. He checked every box that was expected of him. And last year, I think given he had to shoulder a bigger load with, with Deandre Swift banged up uh, as, as he's been much of his career um, exceeded those bars in, in so many ways. And uh, but at the end of the day, I, there are still, as, as with every NFL player, there are just limitations in, in what he can do. And um, I know Jamal Williams uses interview segments like this and the words that I'm saying is as motivation. And I think that's, that's fine. But uh, you know, this is still a guy that, that has averaged around four yards per carry during his career. Uh, not a ton of explosive plays, not a lot of missed tackles, not huge contributions in the, in the past game. He's that North South durable workhorse. And there will always, always, always be valuable value for guys in the league that have that skill set. And even more so with, with guys with Williams character and leadership ability. Um, but I think a lot of people get hung up on the 17 touchdowns and 17 rushing touchdowns is, is remarkable, but it's, it's a, a stat that's also often a matter of circumstance, right? And you look at the the 17, I can't remember the exact number, but 12 or 14 of them came within two yards. And so now you're talking about in baseball terms, RBI is when uh, bases are loaded, right? You're seeing better pitches. It's, it's easier to drive those guys in. It's a matter of circumstance. You still have to get the hit. You still have to run that one or two yards, but um, when you're set up to succeed like that and it meshes well with your skill set, um, it can overinflate a player's value. And and Brad Holmes didn't see that. They set a, a price tag that they were willing to pay for Jamal Williams. They offered it. He didn't like it. They moved on to another player that was willing to accept a a contract in that offer. And and, and Dave Montgomery and and that's a better back. There's there's no question about it in my mind. You're talking about a guy that has broke or made as many tacklers miss as anybody since he's been in the NFL. He's couple years younger he contributes more in the past game and I, I found one set that was really interesting is jamal david montgomery has played more snaps every single season than the maximum that jamal williams has played in a season so mm -hmm. he's also more durable more reliable on a down-to-down -down basis and again going back to swift if if swift gets banged up again as he has the first three years in his career you can trust David Montgomery to fulfill more of the playbook. You don't have to condense your playbook now because of a different style runner. And I'm not saying that David Montgomery is as explosive as DeAndre Swift, but you know that he can contribute in the pass game in ways that Jamal Williams couldn't. So you are able to keep the playbook pretty much the same as it was pre or post Swift. Um, last question. There have been a lot of stories uh, written lately, people talking about the possibility of Detroit trading up uh, here in the upcoming draft, which will be a week from this Thursday. Uh, a, are you buying that? And B, if they don't trade up, uh, what would they be drafting? If they do trade up, what would that mean they're drafting? I would have said last year I, I wouldn't have imagined the Lions trading up of the first round and then Brad Holmes goes out and uh, pulls a 20 move up the board uh, deal to to land Jameson Williams so uh, I'm not putting anything past them they've done a really nice job of, of filling all their gaps and holes obvious holes in free agency that 
uh, they do have the flexibility to, to, to kind of go out and get the best player available and use their assets. Um, but given what we talked about earlier, that I, I genuinely believe that, that Jared Goff is their guy, if you're not trading up for a quarterback, I, I don't know if that's great value to be moving up from six to two or three, particularly since there is a market for those quarterbacks up there. So now you're competing with um, you know, a force that that increases the value of those picks. Mm -hmm. We've seen some of those trades to to move up. So um, you know, if you're thinking about moving up for a Will Anderson, um, it's it's just probably not the best use of your resources. So um I expect the Lions to to hang tight at six. Um, certainly wouldn't be surprised that they, they move down if the right offer presents itself and one of those quarterbacks is there. But um, if they hang at six, I think the two most likely options is are they, they address either the defensive line or continue to address the secondary. I know we talked, they overhauled that unit this year. A um, lot of significant moves, a lot of significant additions, but the reality is Cam Sutton's the only one of consequence that's under contract beyond this year at the cornerback position. So they still... Um, have a long-term need there at cornerback. I think it's in play at 6 and 18, um, just depending on how they feel, what other players are available. Um, defensive linemen, obviously, are, are you can never have enough pass rush, right? And so uh, if if by some explicable reason Will Anderson drops, uh, that that's an option. I, I really like uh, Wilson from, from Texas Tech at that spot as well. All right. Justin Rogers, kind enough to join us from the Detroit News. We can't thank you enough for your time today, sir. Thanks so much. Of course, thank you for having me. All right, Justin Rogers, kind enough to join. It's your team, Paul, the Lions. I mean, uh, Casey, Casey, it's your team, the Lions. Definitely not mine. Yeah, I, I really, I, I'm telling you, me and Trace were on the Lions early last season. Maybe I jumped the gun a little bit, but we could see the future, right? This team is Ooh, just. Ooh, I like that. We, I we, like that. We saw what was to come with their draft capital, with the guys that they are bringing on. Just the direction of the team itself. I mean, the the what he said earlier um, about Jared Goff that first year he was there, um, their offensive line being banged up. That was a big deal. That was a really big deal. And that, I think, was Penny Sewell's first year. Yep. And, you know, last year you saw what that offensive line is capable of. It's a top three offensive line. It's a, it is devastating, especially in the run game. I agreed with his assessment about Jamal Williams um, being that, you know, he might have had a better season because of the talent around him and that offensive line being the way it was. Um, regardless, I really like their chances this year. They got two first-round picks, one at six and one at 18. And, man, if they, get, if they were to get, like, Tyree Wilson or um, – Will Anderson at six. I mean, that would just be a steal. I expect them to get a, a corner, um, the best corner probably, the kid out of Oregon, or um, maybe the the um, Deontay Banks maybe, or um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of directions they could go regardless at six and 18. And I expect them to be even better than they were last year because that division is, is – I think significantly worse or they're going through rebuilds. So um, whatever the Lions win total is right now, it's not high enough. That's how I feel about the Lions this year. Well, I mean, come on now, Casey. I mean, you're not going to you, – I mean, if, some, if, it, if it was put out there on Betfred Sports and it was a 13, you wouldn't bet that. Well, it's not at 13. 
Well, I know it's not. But you just said no win total is high enough. Whatever it is right now, it's not high enough. I don't know. If, if they moved it up to 12, I probably wouldn't take that. But The yeah, Lions I, winning 12 games next year? I mean, what, the, what's the Vikings... let, me, let me take real quick because, you know, it's really interesting. I was doing this drill the other day of looking at teams because I don't pay any attention to it, you know, right now. about the, Because the schedule gets released, I think it's the first week or second week of May, yeah. right? Um, and it's interesting to look at some of the teams and, and who they're going to play, you know, uh, because of, you know, what division they're playing and then based uh, what, what teams – you know, so on and so forth. So I'm just trying to see. Um, we don't know uh, that the opponents have been finalized. Ooh, so they, they have home games against, obviously, in their division. They have home and road games with the um, – um, where, where did this just disappear on me? I mean, these websites, there's so, so many advertisements. Good Lord. So they – Got to pay have, the bills somehow, Tom. Well, I understand that. They I mean, have, come on. They have home games. Yeah, yeah. They got against... they got the Bears, Packers, Vikings, obviously, right? But then at home, I tell you, I'll take my chances against this home slate. Yeah, I mean they nice. got Atlanta, who you're all fired up about. Carolina, Denver. I do think Denver will be better, but it's Denver at home. The Raiders and the Seahawks. So those are every one of those winnable games. Now. You start going on the road, a little bit different. They have to go to the Chiefs. That's tough. They have to go to the Chargers. They have to go to the Saints. The Buccaneers, two winnable games there. But they go on the road to the Ravens and the Cowboys. Yeah. All right. Now, let me ask you this. I don't want to spend any more time on the Lions. We've talked about it for 20 minutes. Um, when you brought up Lamar Jackson, yeah. Now, you know, every situation is different. Now, you had made the comment, you think this kind of backs up the way he feels about, you know, what he should be getting out there, okay? But the thing is, is that every team in the NFL right now has a chance to give him that kind of contract. He is on a non-exclusive franchise deal, which means Every team in the league has a chance to make a contract offer now. You know, you'd have to give up two first-round draft picks or try to negotiate something different out of that deal. But the bottom line is from what – from now, look, I don't have the inside information. There doesn't seem to be a team in the world out there interested in Lamar Jackson. And no. if you are the Baltimore Ravens, why in the world would you think about giving him a long-term deal right now? Based on injuries? Based on him not showing up at a playoff game just to cheer on his teammates? I mean, the Ravens have all the leverage in the world on this thing. And Lamar Jackson's a talented cat. There's no question about that. But every team in the – now you cross off some because they don't need them. Bengals, Chargers, Eagles, Chiefs, blah, blah, blah. Every team has had a chance to go after and pursue Lamar Jackson. And it ain't happened. I mean, I don't think it's a, a money issue, honestly. I really don't. I don't think it's the money issue. I think it's the trade. 
It's the we got to give up two first rounders for Lamar Jackson. Um, even even Jim Irsay said it himself. He it's more of a matter of it's not the money. It's the the, the draft capital that you just don't want to give up. And teams that need a quarterback are really high up in the draft. And it's more more value for the Ravens to get a trade done with a team that's in the top 10. That's just a matter of fact, right? And you're not wanting to give away a top 10 pick because you could get a very valuable player out of that deal. Maybe you would do it for one first-round pick in the top 10, but even so, I mean, it's just it's hard to imagine. Even, like, the top five teams in the NFL, if they could trade away their – top five pick for Lamar Jackson, I don't think they would do it because of how valuable that is. Now, I will say that there's still a chance that maybe they find some deal that they could find a team that could trade a first round pick and maybe not a second first round pick, but a second round pick or a third round pick and maybe throw in a player or something like that. I still believe that can happen. But the more and more this drags out, and with this new deal, I I don't see a deal coming to fruition for Lamar, at least in Baltimore. That's not going to happen. Not for $180 million guaranteed. Nope. Certainly not that. And Definitely not. He's already declined $130 million guaranteed, apparently. So, I don't know. This is, this is really... Uh, it's, it really looks like, to me, it's going to come down to a stalemate. I know you think that he won't sit out. I, I think he might. I think there's a 50% or more than 50% chance that Well, he'll if sit he out. does, he's, he's an idiot. If he sits out, the guy's an idiot. Well, what else does he have? What other choice does he have if he wants a better deal? Well, listen, okay, you may not get $180 million guaranteed, but I know one thing. If his franchise tag calls for him to make somewhere around $35, $40 million this year, two things are for sure. One, if you sit out, you're walking away from $35 or $40 million. That's number one. Number two is, if you think your chances of getting a long-term deal for the kind of money you're looking for are bad right now, wait till you sit out a year. Le'Veon Bell is example A of a guy who did this, rolled the dice, and it could not have turned out worse. He was in a great situation in Pittsburgh, great offensive line, great player. He was the best running back in the NFL all around, running it, catching it, maybe the best player in the league. He sits out a year, and he's never the same again. Well, I mean, play-wise, but he did end up getting a deal. But he didn't get the deal he was looking for in Pittsburgh. No, he. I think he got, like, the exact, like, the whatever contract Pittsburgh gave him the year that they were trying to sign him, I think that's what the Jets tried to give him. Yeah, but now you have to, when you're figuring that contract, though, you have to put underneath there minus what he would have made that year he right. sat out. Right. So these guys might think, or getting advice, and remember now, Lamar Jackson does not have an agent. I mean, people can say a lot of things about agents. They can be slippery. They can be slimy. They can be a lot of things. But look, they are held by the league, the NFL in this case, to a certain level of standards on how they conduct themselves. 
And the one thing about agents that is so very valuable, if they're a good one, and there are a lot of good ones out there, is they will tell you things sometimes that you want to hear. The great ones are the ones that tell you things you don't want to hear. And right now, there's no one in Lamar Jackson's ear, at least that we know of, that is saying to him, Lamar, listen, there is no way on God's earth that there, there is zero upside. That's a question you always have to ask yourself. What's the upside to sitting out? Okay, upside is you don't play football for a year. Is that good? Does that increase your value or a team's desire to have you come play for them? So that would mean if he sat out, he did not play the last six weeks of this year. So if he sat out this coming season, that would mean you're talking almost two years since he took a snap in the league. Who's giving him $180 million or $225 million for that? Nobody. Okay, what's the upside? Walking away from $35 or $40 million? Upside there? I don't see it. Based on what principle? Based on what? The only, the only thing that you can compare the situation to, in my opinion, is Deshaun Watson, where he was out for more than a year and it, the, the situation surrounding him is different right he's not well it's very charged. different than Deshaun Watson very right, but, different but a team a team eventually he was suspended and, by the NFL yeah but he he was gonna sit out like he was going to get traded he was going to find a, a, a team that was going to pay him after sitting out for two years is what I'm getting at so I think it's possible, but it's very, very slim that a good resolution comes from this. I just don't see what he can do. I mean, yeah, he can play, but i he's already demanded a trade. I don't even think the Ravens want him. If you want ask me, I think they should get rid of him. But that's that's my opinion on that. I well, think that he has no chance of getting a contract that he wants by sitting out. I mean, if he wants to prove to people and give himself a listen at the end of the day here's the deal okay if he plays and plays like he's capable of playing and he goes and plays on a franchise tag deal with the ravens this season takes him to the playoffs maybe gets into an afc championship game who knows right yep. generally when he plays they go to the playoffs they get to the playoffs this year and he barely played but when he plays they are a bona fide playoff championship-level contending team, by and large, okay? If he goes and plays this year, plays his tail off, good leader, okay, stays healthy, he dramatically enhances his chances of getting that deal a year later. If he sits out, he has no chance. Somebody made the, the, the point in the chat, and, and you did too, about Watson. The, the Cleveland-Watson deal is a total, unequivocal outlier deal made by a desperate franchise that has not won a playoff game, one game, they've won one, in seemingly forever. A stinky franchise. That, there's no question. So they were a desperate franchise. The Ravens are nowhere. They, they are the antithesis of a desperate franchise. So, we'll see how it all plays out. What I do know is, boys, we have box lunch coming up today. 
Reed Mouse. Tom, how's it going? I mean, you had a T-shirt on the other day. 75, 80 degrees over the weekend. Sunshine all last week. Now we're at 39. <laughs> and raining. Had to pull back out the window. Yeah, you did. You, you got, the, you got the, the lumberjack mountain man sort of look. You, you kind of look like a lumberjack, Tom. There's no doubt. No doubt. I think the first thing people think of when they think of me is a lumberjack type. Remember when you grew that beard out? Yeah. I missed that facial hair. I thought I it looks too. good. I might grow it back. It but I got to find that stuff. You, none of you guys know anything about it. I, I got to find because I let it grow all weekend. And I mean, it's, and now it all comes in. It's all white. I, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look like Santa Claus. I'm not that old yet. So I got to find that stuff that, uh, that you can put in it if I'm going to grow it. Make it look brown. Some, some dye? Touch yeah. of gray. Touch of gray. Is that what? Touch of gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you finish Breaking Bad? I haven't watched an episode since we talked about it. Oh, I told no. you I was going to try over the weekend. Yeah. Too busy. Dude, we're busy all weekend. Traveling all around. High school sports, that kind of thing. So, no. But I am going to get back at it. I spent half my weekend trying to get guests for this show. <laughs> so, That's we will challenge. try back at Oh, boy. Oh. But we're thankful to um, Wayne Larrabee. We're thankful to Bobby Nightingale Jr. and Justin Wright. Tomorrow, tomorrow, we have Tracy Jones joins us all the time. We had a change of time on him, by the way, because our other two guests tomorrow, really looking forward to it. Steve Serby is a columnist at the New York Post. Well, I, I love Steve. Love I Steve sat next Serby. to him last year yeah. at the Sweet 16. Steve and I sat next to each other all weekend. He's great. Crusty veteran. He's awesome. New York through and through, man. Yeah. I mean, if you want it told like it is, Serby's going to do it tomorrow. Talk about the Jets and the Giants. And also tomorrow, I'm really looking forward to, I, it's one of my favorite guys in the world, is Tim Ryan. Used to announce the NFL on Fox. He made the decision for family reasons uh, about three, four years ago that he was just going to go broadcast the San Francisco 49ers games on radio there in the Bay Area. So he will join us tomorrow. So tomorrow we'll cover the Jets, the G-Men, your guys, G-Men. G-Men. That's right. Daniel Jones. Um, and, uh, and Tim Ryan will tell us what's going on with the Niners. Big league show tomorrow. Packed show. Big show. All right. It's time for box lunch. You guys ready to go? Ready to roll. Here we go. Box lunch. Have a great day.